0: And welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today.
1: Well, if you haven't gotten there already, we're in Psalm 35 tonight. And it's yet another Psalm of David, as so many are in book one of the Psalms. Uh, You know, there's five books of the Psalms. Book one is Psalm 1 to 41. And there's not been a lot written about why five Psalms and what might be happening there. Since the Psalms are songs, I kind of liken it to discography, you know, and first album, second album, third album, and, you know, uh, there's a place we're going to reach where it says the Psalms of David are ended. And then after that, there's a couple more Psalms of David put in, and what I think's happening there is, uh, you know, David was such a great songwriter that, of course, Psalm one, disc one, you know, is the Psalms of David, and there's a whole bunch more in in the second book of the Psalms, you know. And then as he uh, had other musicians leading the way there at temple uh, worship, tabernacle worship, then temple worship, when Solomon built the temple, uh, the others were writing things that got put in and then uh, like uh, sometimes gets discovered a guy died a number of years ago and they discover another song and they're like oh the world needs to hear this song and so I think that later on they said oh in David's papers we found another psalm and the Holy Spirit uh, used the uh, ones that came after David to put that in later on so the psalms of David had ended he was dead you know but He had written down things that they found and brought back out and uh, just kind of neat like that. So uh, we'll talk a little bit as we transition from the first book of Psalms to the second book and those things about some of those things that are going on. A lot of people have lots of different theories. Some like to liken the five books of the Psalms to the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And so in that, the beginning Psalms would... Parallel Genesis, the book that we're in now, Psalms 1-41. Psalm 35 is one of the imprecatory psalms in which the one praying asks God to decisively deal with those who have hurt God's people and cause. And so sometimes because of what we know about our faith in Jesus and his call to forgive and love our enemies and those things, sometimes it's hard to read these psalms. And so one of the things we're reminded of as we read through the scriptures is that God in his wisdom has given us about 20 different kinds of literature in the Bible. And so if you ever read the holy books or so-called holy books of other religions, it's just simply not like that. Uh, There is uh, the writings of Buddha are like the book of Proverbs, just wise sayings, you know, Um, and some not so wise for Buddha, you know. Uh, Confucius, same way, but that's kind of what it is, you know. Um, the writings of the Hindus are kind of like um, Greek mythology. Gods mess with people, that creates demigods who mess with people, that creates quarter gods, you know, and mayhem ensues. You know, is they tell all their stories about this god messing with this, you know, kind of thing and stuff, and they get to 330 million gods with lots of different, uh, uh, you know, karma and Eastern religion things thrown in. Uh, the Quran. Is simply Muhammad's rambling commentary on the Old and New Testament. He didn't. He was illiterate. He never read the Old or New Testament. He had heard stories about it from people, and so he it's it's rambling commentary on Old and New Testament, and then he throws in, uh, you know, some Leviticus-type uh, prohibitions and some uh, uh, say you got to fight for Allah, and I'll tell you how to do that, you know, kind of things and stuff. So. Uh, But the scriptures, wow, the Holy Spirit has given us about 20 different kinds of literature, and each kind of literature in the scripture kind of calls for its own reflection on uh, understanding it as, as literature and how to read it. What are you saying, Pastor Danny? Well, here's an example. Proverbs are generally true principles, but not absolute promises the way the promises that are in the Bible are uh... so proverbs twenty two six is a great principle for us it's encouraged many a parent train up a child in the way he should go when he's old he won't depart from it it's a generally true principle it's not an absolute promise or else there never would have been any prodigal children ever right uh... every parent that got it right would have had children that were right and all the way down and stuff you know um... and so it's a generally true principle and even beyond the spiritual hope that prodigal children will return we do pray for that Uh, there is the acknowledgement that even a child who never adopts their parents' faith will still adopt some of their parents' ways when they're up in age and say things that their daddy would have said or their granddaddy would have said, you know, because of time and influence on them. Uh, Historical narrative in the scripture, it tells the record of what happened. Um, Doctrinal portions tell you exactly what you're to believe and do today. And so sometimes the record of what happened isn't what we're supposed to do today, right? So uh, the book of Acts gives three or four occurrences of speaking in tongues, but you leave the book of Acts saying, what do I do with tongues? And so you go to the doctrinal portion of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and in that section it tells you everything you want to know about principles for dealing with tongues in life and church, et cetera, you know, and those type of things. Um, what are some others? Well, predictive prophecies. No, none of the world's religions have predictive prophecies where uh, hundreds and even thousands of years before something happened, God writes it into history in advance uh, so that when the time comes and the prophecy is fulfilled, say, well, yeah, God said that all these years ago. There's nothing like that in the Quran. The Quran has one. Muhammad says he's going to return to Mecca, which was in his power to fulfill, right? But uh, it was not in Jesus's... Uh, baby power, right, to be born in Bethlehem, that had to be orchestrated by the Holy Spirit, the events getting Joseph and Mary down there you know, and those things, or that he would be born of a virgin and those things things that it was impossible for him to affect as a, as a baby human, you know, were affected in the council of the triune God before history ever began and written into Scripture in advance to show it um, Psalms are a great study I mean, we know about, there's Old Testament, there's New Testament, Psalms is the hymn book for both Israel and the church looking back. And we know the Psalms, many of them give notes about being sung, and so it's kind of also a hymn book. Uh, but at its core component, most of the Psalms are prayers of people desperately seeking God, praising Him, wanting Him to intervene, etc. cetera. And the older you get as a believer, the more you will turn to Psalms and find voice for your times of frustration, uh, for your times of uh, disillusionment, your times of even anger at God or a situation and those things. And I'm so thankful that God gave us these 150 Psalms, these prayers to God, uh, these interactions with truth, you know, uh, that uh, have some prophetic elements in them as we, we look at the psalms uh, but also just encourage us so much as we try to find words for our faith so it has troubled many a person to see imprecatory psalms in. we're going to talk about that today but when you are asking God God somebody's attacked me you attack them <laughs> and uh, of course the good news about that from a Christian perspective is he's not saying God help me attack them back he's saying God They've done me wrong, and I'm just going to give it to you to deal with. You know, So he's not taking vengeance in his own hands. His prayer is that God will deal with, with what needs to get dealt with. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. Well, at 28 verses, Psalm 35 is one of the longer psalms. And as I read it, look for three sections of prayers for God to intervene, with each section followed by a couple of verses of praise. So there is a format here. David pours out his heart to God, then gives a couple verses of praise. He pours out his heart to God, gives a couple of verses of praise. He pours his heart out to God, gives a couple of verses of praise. So look for verses in here in which David uses military language to describe what he wants God to do. And look for verses where David uses a little hunting and agricultural language. Look for verses where David uses a little courtroom language, appealing to God as judge. Uh, Look for characteristics of ungodly behavior toward uh, David and uh, others. So David's saying, you know, both me and people in the land that love you, there's those people doing this to us. Look for a couple more references to the angel of the Lord, like we saw in Psalm 34, 7. And especially since how much David trusts God to act on his behalf, praising God in advance for the coming answer. So I'm going to go ahead and read it starting in verse one. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause, they've hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction, let him fall. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones, these weary bones, them bones, them bones, all my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. Ooh, I like that. Against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it, we got him. This you have seen, O Lord, do not keep silence. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication. To my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so we would have it. Let not them say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. But let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Mm, Psalm 35. So we're gonna look at it in three sections here. And in the first eight verses... David says, Lord, please fight against those fighting against me. We saw that in verse 1. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Literally, here's what David cries out in the Hebrew Accuse my accusers, Yahweh. (laughs) Attack my attackers. And as we've said a little bit earlier, I think that many times we're shocked at some of the Psalms and how different the language is than some of the things Jesus said, like in his Sermon on the Mount, right? Where he said, Bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who spitefully use you. Uh, Not only did Jesus command such things, he did what to help us do that? He gave us the power to love our enemies and to forgive those. Uh, Those who experience the new birth have the power to obey those commands. In a very special sense, they have the indwelling Holy Spirit that was not known to most people living in, under the days of the Old Covenant. Uh, you do understand that, right? That there's a difference in uh, what Christ did at the cross was so powerful as death and resurrection that we now enjoy something Old Testament saints did not enjoy, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit to all who believe. That's why in John 7, Jesus stood up at the feast and John records that uh, Jesus on the last day of the feast stood up and said, the one who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And John couldn't help himself. Under the writing of the Spirit, he gives the next verse that says, he said this about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later going to receive. The Spirit had not been given yet, comma, because Jesus had not been glorified yet. And when I think about that verse, my mind just has a little TNT set off inside of it. You know, you see the light bulb go on, right? Oh, what John's teaching there is that in Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell all believers permanently like he does now. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come for a time, for a task, usually for to a leader, to help them obey God, to help them build tabernacles, to help them... Uh, prophecy to help them rule the people and those things. When Saul sinned, what did the Holy Spirit do? He left Saul's presence. In Psalm 51, when David sinned, he wasn't as concerned about losing the kingdom as uh, losing the presence of God. He said, God, please, Yahweh, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, which he'd seen happen to Saul and presumably could have happened to him. But in Ephesians 1, we're told for us believers, this side of the cross Uh, having believed you were sealed with the Spirit, that's your guarantee of your future inheritance, which is awesome. So it means all true believers have the Holy Spirit inside. We've got power to forgive in a way that others really struggled with before the uh, death and resurrection of Christ. We've got New Testament power. Um, But that doesn't mean we can't appreciate the situation David was in in those old covenant days. And even when we get to the book of Revelation, we're told that There's saints underneath the throne who had been martyred while on earth. And in Revelation 6, they're pictured seeing people getting killed for the faith back on earth and saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge the blood of those who have been killed by these wicked people? That's a paraphrase, of course. but um, So they're in heaven. It's the time of the tribulation. They're aware of what's going on on earth. And they're saying, How long, O God? Well, that sounds like the psalmist's prayers, right? So somehow we have to, as New Testament believers, find a way to have a robust prayer life where we're praying for these things to be justly dealt with in God's due timing, but we're not forgetting to pray for the salvation of even the worst of people because sometimes the worst of people become the best of Christians, right? Like Paul, who Ananias' first reaction was, wait a second, that's the one I've been praying for you to deal with, Lord, and you're telling me to go baptize him? What? (laughs) Uh, And so we factor these things in. When Psalm 35 was written, Israel was God's unique nation, David was God's king, Attacks on Israel and Israel's king, whether they came from without or you are filling the blank here, from within, were really attacks on God. So David pleads with God to do something about it. Now one day God will restore Israel and Jesus, will reign physically from Jerusalem. And during that thousand year reign to come, Jesus won't tolerate any open rebellion among the nations. But right now we as Christians are living among the nations within the nations and we seek to let out jesus's teachings as we interact with others but that doesn't mean we can't learn from david's prayer here in the situation he was in so keep in mind how really powerful it is david is not taking matters into his own imperfect hands he is asking god to take matters into his perfect hands and from near i can tell god says freely come to me Share with me your frustrations in your workplace among those who have set themselves up to be your enemies, even though you haven't set yourself up to be theirs. And, you know, there are many times where I frankly, I pray, Lord, there's a situation here, and I just I just need you to intervene. You know, I need you to act, because if I act, it's going to be in the flesh. It's going to dishonor your name. People are going to say, look what that preacher did, you know, and stuff like that. And you know what God has often done? Over time, he's answered in the perfect way. You know, situations that I couldn't have even thought about. I I I couldn't have imagined how it was going to be handled. God just goes before and it's handled, you know. Now, it makes you wonder about a prayer life. Let's do an aside here of R.J. Barber, you know, because R.J. used to tell some stories, didn't he? about somebody lined up against the work of the gospel, against the, lo- the work of the radio program that was God's beautiful program on the radio there. And there were times he uh, spoke some of these imprecatory type psalms and somebody would be dead in a week. And as far as I know, he never ordered a hit with anywhere but God taking care of it, you know? <laughs> And so we've got to find a way to process, right, how we're going to love people and share the gospel with them, but we're also going to really seriously pray to God to take care of what he can do. I'd rather him save them. Can I tell you about the legendary Mordecai Ham who uh, spoke at the tabernacle in the 30s? David Mitchell used to say that one time he went to the airport with his daddy, and they were picking up at the airport Mordecai Ham to speak in Danville. And Mordecai Ham in the twenties and thirties spoke a couple times in Danville, where several thousand people were saved. Same thing happened in Burlington, Greensboro, Charlotte. In fact, if I get the story right, Billy Graham was saved at a crusade uh, that Mordecai Ham did in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mordecai Ham was the speaker. If I understand right, he was in Danville, Virginia, before going to Charlotte. If those, if it's right in the book that I read, just before that, there had been some Billy Graham saved in uh, in, in Danville. You know which is kind of neat, but Mordecai Ham used to go into a town, and he would say, take me, we're going to do a six, eight week crusade, however the Lord blesses it, they'd build this big wooden tabernacle, you know, afterwards they'd donate the lumber to different causes in the town when they tore it down, but they'd build this big thing up that could seat hundreds if not thousands, and Mordecai Ham would say to his host, take me to the most notorious sinner in the area. Many times it was a bootlegger, a still guy making alcohol and stuff like this. And uh, I love the story. Uh, in one place, it would often work out because of his fearless, uh, being a fearless evangelist and stuff. He, he, he went to one place, and there was this uh, farmer that was a really wicked man. And when he heard Mordecai Ham was coming, he, hood, he, he hid underneath his hay. And uh, Mordecai Ham was brought right up to him, and he said, You come up out of there. I'm going to talk to you. And uh, the fellow said, I don't want to talk to you. Well, get out of here. I, get out of here. I need to talk to you. And he would. And guy, Ham, would say, listen, I have to pray that God's going to kill you. And the guy said, what, what? Why are you going to pray God's going to kill me? He said, because you are a no-good sinner who, with your alcohol distribution and your support of prostitution and other stuff, whatever it was, you know, uh, he laid on him. And he said, you're just taking up space Harming people, uh, you know, God's not going to allow it much longer. Surely your time is about to come. So I'm going to pray that God will kill you. And the fellow said, Well, don't pray that God will kill me. And Mordecai Ham would look back and he had him at that point, you know. And he did this more than once. And he said, Well, there's only one other way I can pray for you. <laughs> well, what's that? What's that? I can pray that God will save you. He said, Yeah, preacher. Pray that God will save me. He said, Well, if I'm going to pray that God will save you, you've got to want to be saved. You've got to want to turn from what God has to judge and let Jesus take that, and many times they'd open the crusade with one or two of those birds on the front row ready to walk to Iowa when the invitation was given and stuff. So pretty neat stories, huh? Mm -hmm. But uh, so what kind of language does David use in verses one through four? What are some traces of there? What do you see? He's asking God to fight for him. We think of fights, we think of military language, right? Uh, What does he specifically ask God to do in verse two? God, get your shield out and your buckler. What's a buckler? 100%. It's a type of shield. So he's got two shields? Double Captain America? Are you sure it's not a different kind of old-timey sword? 100% they- probably been to on it. Well, actually, I was hoping you guys could fill it in for me. Um, it's obviously uh, equipment ready to attack, right? He's got the shield that is both a defensive and an offensive weapon. When we think about Ephesians 6, people make the mistake of saying that the shield of faith is a defensive thing, but many, you can knock somebody out with a shield, right? So with the shield, you can deflect the fiery darts of the evil one coming toward you, but you can also, as you advance... pop a bad guy you know and stuff like that so faith is something that helps Uh, faith is the victory that overcomes the world right uh i love how he says it he pictures god taking up the shield and the buckler whatever it is and he says god stand up for my help uh have, have you ever seen a great scene where somebody's about to get uh beat up or something and somebody bigger steps forward and guides and he says god help me I'm in this situation. They're coming after me. They're strong, and they're against me. Lord, won't you stand in there, and won't you stop those who pursue me? Have you got it yet, John? John is looking it up for us. Well, it does say something piercing a hook, a barb,
0: meaning dubious, and it also coolness or
1: cold for snow, and then it does say shield. Okay. Okay, I think... uh, when you talk about the shield, we know what that is. I think the, the buckler being talked about here is kind of a in between a sword and a, and a, and a knife. It's more of an extended dagger type thing. I may be wrong. Uh, anybody else have that, a note about that in your Bible or anything? And for, in this instance, I did not get that. But these words really help me know how to pray against unreasonable people who don't have my best interests in mind. Um, you and I need to make sure we're truly seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness like Matthew six thirty three says when we do we also need to trust God to deal with those who don't like it because they don't want God's will done and I'll tell you I just talk to people all the time many of them younger as we get older uh, most things have kind of shaken out in our lives and often we're more around even more people that are godly and love the Lord and that sort of thing we, we choose to be around that company too We need to be careful to make sure we're still having opportunities to reach out to lost people and and get ourselves out there. Sometimes it's easy to do that as part of a church ministry like Good News Club. But particularly when we're younger and we're starting to take those first stands for Christ, there's people our age and others who don't like it. And they say, well, come on, Jameson, you know, uh, do this, do that, you know. It's like, no, I'm going to take my stand for Christ. But uh, we need to trust God to deal with those. And and it'd be great if he dealt with those by saving those friends, you know, who don't appreciate our faith and our growth in the Lord. I love how he says it in verse four. Bring it back on them, Lord. Uh, Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek my life. Uh, Turn them back. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my heart. Do you ever pray for God to confuse people? I do. I see some of the just terrible political initiatives, you know, um, know, at the local level and at the state level and at the federal level and and things like that, and I say, you know, I I pray for confusion to descend on those who would uh, do things that are bad for people and bad for the area and bad for the country, Um, and, uh, you know, and... We don't know what God's doing and what he's allowing. I certainly prayed for things like that related to Caesars, you know, and I still do. Uh, They've got the temporary building there. They don't have the permanent building there. And I still pray, Lord, frustrate those efforts. You know, let it be revealed that there's probably mafia connections behind that. It's not good, innocent fun. There's probably, uh, you know, casinos become places where money gets laundered and other organized crime activities and stuff like that. And so I pray uh, for for frustration, for the efforts uh, to um, advance those things. So I think those are great things to pray for those who have made themselves God's enemies. Just don't forget to ask God to save them also. Uh, We look at this passage and I think we're gonna see in a few moments, David had some uh, traits of compassion toward those that didn't know Yahweh, who possibly could know Yahweh. We know the conviction was strong with his son Solomon that one of the things God was doing in Israel and giving them a temple and having these glorious, this glorious nation, He did picture people from other nations hear what 's going on, coming to Jerusalem and Israel, check things out, and realizing Yahweh is the way <laughs> you know and the Queen of the Sheba, <laughs> the Queen of Sheba <laughs> was one of those who, right after Solomon dedicates the temple, asking even for foreigners prayers to be heard when they come. a couple chapters later, the Queen of Sheba comes, and she Appears to turn to Yahweh. And it seems like Jesus makes clear in the New Testament, you know, that she got in on it, you know. Uh, And so uh, others probably did as well. Um, Who does David appeal to in verses 5 and 6? The angel of the Lord. Uh, He did this in the psalm right before this, Psalm 34. So, uh, the angel of the Lord doesn't appear throughout the Psalms, but here we've had back-to-back references to uh, the uh, angel of the Lord. Back in Psalm 34 and verse 7, David sta- stated that the angel of the Lord is uh, is camping out with those who fear God and delivers them. So if the angel of the Lord is camping out among us, right? Right? Uh, then it's not bad to also ask that same angel of the Lord to intervene now. What does he ask the angel of the Lord to do in verses 5 and 6? Drive them away. away. Chase them, Lord! (laughs) Drive them away. Um, uh, And drive them away, specifically down dark and slippery places. You ever been chasing somebody when things are dark and slippery? <laughs> David's like, you know, not only chase them away, Lord, but chase them so they'll slip and fall. <laughs> you know, I want them to remember that they had set themselves up against God's people and God's causes and stuff. I want them to get a knock on their head as they fall down that ravine or whatever um, uh, to pursue them and have them fall uh, into the net they wanted to catch the God-fearing David in. Now, we've seen already a psalm or two that says this thought. The bad guys that don't love the Lord, they can love the Lord if they'll turn to him, but they don't. And so they're setting themselves up against God's people, God's King David in this case. And he pictures a hunting scene where there's a net prepared for the animal to run into and get caught so it can get eaten you know, later. And um, David says, Lord so frustrate their efforts that they wind up getting caught in the net that they had prepared for the godly to fall into. Can you think of any stories like that in the scripture where that very thing happens? Uh, Haman. That's my favorite one, isn't it? Were you going to say that too? sorry. Yeah, we're talking about the book of Esther, for those that are tracking with us here, and in one of the great stories of the scripture, evil King Haman, who actually uh, if Jimmy DeYoung was right, uh, is... uh, a descendant of the very Palestinians uh, or a forefather of the very Palestinians, the Esau folk, you know, that uh, give Israel a hard time today. So there's some historical markers back and forth there, you know, and of course, there's beautiful Palestinian Christians out there and things, but uh, Israel has a, a special blessing from God and has a real hard current assignment with nations around them wanting to do them harm. And we do see prophetic fulfillment in them being back in the land, although there's more to come with them becoming uh, a spiritual people who uh, turn to God in mass. And so there's a lot yet to happen there. But we see in them being a nation again and in the land fulfillment of prophecy, the Ezekiel vision of the Valley of the Bones, right? You know, that was three stages of Israel's restoration. First, bones rising up. And then the sinews coming in, and then the breath, the spiritual breath that gives life and will honor Christ when he comes. But um, so Haman uh, hated Mordecai, hated the Jews, and he constructed gallows to hang Mordecai on. but talk about falling into the net, you'd prepare for somebody else. Mordecai wound up hanging on the gallows he'd uh, Haman wound up hanging on the gallows he directed for Mordecai. Great story. Can y'all think of any others? There's, there's probably some others out there too. Um, it took years, but Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. Yeah, that's right. Years later. Yeah. There they are bowing to him. Yeah, and he was um, definitely uh, God. God showed who uh, had been the honorable and all that. Very good. All right. Well. Um, After these first eight verses, he comes to his first praise chorus. And in these three different praise choruses at the end of these lament or these imprecatory prayers, uh, there is a progression. So in the first one, what does David say? I will praise in my soul. He says in verse 9, My soul will be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. So, Lord, I'm going to praise you. He's anticipating the answer, but he's also committing to praise God no matter what. I will praise in my soul. There's your fill in the blank there. And I like how he talks about bones. These old bones will thank God for deliverance from those who, humanly speaking, were stronger and more cunning. Um, So notice David's humility there. Verse 10, Lord, who is like you? You deliver the poor from him who is too strong for him. So David liked Israel. He believed they were God's people. But he's like, humanly speaking, these nations around us are strong. And uh, they're formidable. And Lord, if you don't intervene on our behalf, it's not going to happen. And how many times are Christians in that kind of circumstance, Lord? There are bigger things afoot here than we can deal with, you know there is enough lostness in Danville enough activity of Satan and his demons that uh, if we don't uh, see God show up and do what he alone can do uh, I don't think I think you guys are tracking with me when I one of my main fears for Danville that the Danville that I came to is how much activity we did in the flesh how many good churches and programs and activities we could do without relying on God and anytime God really does it his people are saying Lord we've done the best we could <laughs> but it's a sack lunch compared to the needs of the multitudes if you don't multiply it if you don't, if you don't save people if you don't bring revival to Danville it's not going to come because we, we, we're not good enough to convince everybody of their need of Jesus and their need to get beyond churchianity to real faith in Christ and real commitment to him And Lord, there's some wonderful Christians here. uh, But Lord, if that's going to, if Danville Christians are going to continue to, uh, you know, see great things happen, you got to do it. You got to do it. So, and he can do it. He's done it in the past. He'll do it in the future. Question is whether he'll do it in our day. And that's what we're pleading with him for. So Lord, who is like you? You can deliver the poor from ones that are stronger, from ones that have more resources. Lord, help us. Um, so the next second section there. Lord, they haven't followed your golden rule like I have, verses 11 through 17. So they, uh, one of the things we do in prayer is uh, sometimes we remind, remind God of his promises, and we pledge anew to be committed to you know what he wants us to do. We kind of evaluate our own behavior. Have we done unto others as we would have them do unto us? Isn't it interesting that gets stated both ways in the Scriptures? So it says, do unto others positively as you'd have done unto you but it also says uh, you know it in the other way too right it, as much as you want others to do unto you so it, it says it both ways um and uh david kind of pictures himself defending himself in a courtroom before god the perfect judge isn't verse 11 interesting fierce witnesses rise up they ask me things that i do not know this is the new king james who has a different translation? Anybody have ESV tonight? Johnny, will you read your translation? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. Okay, so fierce turns to malicious, but that second part's still there. They ask me things I don't know. Anybody have a different translation? Isn't that interesting what David says here? I mean, David's knowledgeable. David loves the Lord. Probably as a king is, you know, sought God enough that there's not many people that had access to more scrolls and more learning than him. Uh, He obviously has prophets like Nathan that he turns to and likes. He has priests and songwriters uh, there at the tabernacle and stuff. Um, Peter later is going to write that we should be ready to give a reason for the hope we have within us. And it is good to study to give Christian answers. Many of you have at Word of Life they do apologetics and theology to go along with Bible study and Liberty University does that too. Bryan College did that. Other schools But there are also godless people out there that don't want answers. Sometimes we're ready for the questions and people uh, don't really want our answers. They want to trip us up to confuse our church kids to promote ungodliness and rejection of God. And David must have dealt with some people like that. He says, uh, they ask me things that I do not know. They're asking questions I can't answer uh, because they're trying to trip us up and, and get us off track. Um... They really weren't his friends or friends of God. Look at verse 12. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. So I, I really have, I thought they really wanted to know God, and so I, uh, I talked to them a little bit, and they were just looking for an angle, some way to hurt me, to hurt the work, to exploit the church, you know, or to exploit Israel. And um, I, I tried to help them, David's saying, I tried to teach them, they were not around me for godly reasons, but for their own selfish reasons. And David really pours his heart out to God here because, uh, and this is where it, it really does correspond to the heart of Jesus, uh, you know, who's going to be the son of David hundreds of years later. Look at verse 13. As for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart. So verse 13 lets us know that David really did have a heart for God and people and sought to practice the golden rule. Um, do unto others as you have done unto you. What does verse 13 tell us David did when he found out his enemy was sick? Those that didn't like him. Those that had postured themselves as against him. When he heard they were sick, what did he do? He went in the morning with him. Yeah. He, he stopped his things. He's, oh, man. Um, man, I know that they didn't like me and they didn't want this work to prosper here in Israel, but man, they're going through that? Oh, man. There's a empathy here on the human level that I love about David, right? Um, he's got a shepherd heart toward those that were um, against him, against God's work. And even though he starts by saying, "Attack those who attacked me," God might have done that. God might have been the one that gave the sickness. But, oh, I don't want anybody to really go through that, you know. And so David winds up uh, talking about when they got sick, he uh, was tore up about it. He prayed for them. He even fasted for them. He felt bad for them. He's he's mourning. David, why 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 are you why are you off today? Well, I just heard about oh you know uh, that that. Uh, Philistine king over there and he's go, that's awful that he's going through let's pray for him you know David had that kind of spirit you know about him which is very admirable um, and uh, look at his concern for them in verse 14 I paced about as if he were my friend or brother I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother I paced about as if he was my own kin <laughs> now so David's talking to God about this. And he's kind of in the courtroom. He says, God, man, when, when, they, when they were struggling, I prayed for them. But that wasn't how they were toward him in reverse. Uh, what happened when David had trouble, according to verse 15?
0: They rejoiced. They,
1: rejoiced. <laughs> they threw a party. And they planned on a way to attack David. Uh, David's down. Let's get him. You know, this is our chance. Can you think of some examples you've seen of this even among Christians? I don't know that we want to speak them out loud, but, uh, you know, sometimes we get in this sad state where we think, okay, we want the tabernacle to grow, you know, and uh, we know that uh We've got some things that the Bible calls us to do, to pray, to seek his face, to preach the word, to witness with boldness, to get outside the church walls and go and witness to people, you know. And we know how to grow a church that would please God and honor God. And other pastors and churches do as well. And then there's this enormous temptation to keep church, kind of, comma, ink, church ink going, you know to bring in the folks so we can pay the bills and we can have great ministries and things like that. And somewhere we lose the plot, right? And instead of rejoicing with the sister church when we hear about them experiencing a touch of God's hand of revival, we go, oh, man, I'm a little jealous of that. They must be cutting corners over there, (laughs) We only grow here by preaching the word and witnessing and praying and stuff. Over there, they must be offering free snow cones to people every Sunday. You know, that's how they're doing it. They're dishonoring God to grow that way. We do that, don't we? You know? And sometimes then we hear about a church and something has happened to them, the one of the leaders has been caught up in something, or they've had something that's caused some of their people to go and look for another church or whatever. And our first reaction many times is Yeah, they deserve that. They cut corners to grow, and now the reckoning's coming, and hopefully we'll get some of that growth over here uh, because we're faithful, and they're not, you know, and those things. And, of course, I'm speaking kind of how we don't usually speak and stuff because uh, we really need to check our hearts before God and be thankful for everything that is good, wonderful growth in churches and we want to partner with those churches. One of the things that impresses me uh, so much about the heart of uh, so many of our folk is uh, this thing that, like, uh, Alan Payne and our youth group have done with North Maine now for uh, several years, and it's now up to 17 churches, a spring discipleship now meeting. Uh, where so far they've been able to keep the main thing the main thing give the glory to God glad that kids grow and good things happen and stuff they had four or five hundred this past year and I think like I said I think it was 17 different churches participated and for those churches that call on the name of Jesus and are faithful to the word we need to be partners with them as those things happen Um, you see it happen at Christian colleges too you know um, and ministries uh, you know Um, there were those out there uh, rejoicing, uh, not too loud about it, you know, uh, hey, we need to pray for Liberty University because their latest fall well-named leader, you know, has had a fall. He didn't fall well. (laughs) Um, And so, man... We were concerned that they had lost the plot, and now look, it looks like, well, we'll take those transfer students here if they decide to come to our Christian college instead, you know, and uh, things like that instead say, oh, man, it's really a time to right now be praying for liberty or whatever the school is at the time, and for the guy that fell to repent, you know, and to get right back on track with God, and same thing with uh, churches and Christian ministries and those things. And so David's the king of Israel. When he saw even his enemies fall, he was praying for them. He was fasting for them. He was broken up about it. But it didn't wind up being true in reverse. When David fell, they said, now's our chance. Man, we can get Israel now. And uh, God help us. God help us. May we be people with real compassion and concern and action. So David's so disappointed, he prays to God. Now look at verse 17. Lord, how long will you... Uh, look on, rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. He pictures himself being attacked by lion-like people. And then he enters his second praise chorus. Look what he says in verse 18. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. And what is the difference between this little praise chorus and the first one he gave? He switches from uh, one thing to the other before I give you the word to fill in the blank. <laughs> well, what do you think the difference is? The first one is more of a personal person. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. second one is among the people. You got it. So let's say, let's put the word publicly in there. Praise course number two, I will thank you publicly. In verse nine, he pledged his soul would rejoice. Here he says, he will give thanks publicly for God's help. And so, um, you know, uh, that's great. You know, some of us, you um, have said, God, if you answer my prayer and take care of this situation for me, I will, um, I, I will thank you. I'll say thank you when it's just you and me, Lord. You know, um, but here he's going a little further, isn't he? And he's saying, Lord, everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know my testimony about these things. I'm going to uh, speak up. You know, I'm going to share with the Sunday school class. I'm going to share with the church body about what God's done. And uh, praise him. And if you're a more introverted person, that can be harder to do. If you're a Tigger anyway, like Tigger and Winnie the Pooh, not so difficult. So personality comes into play there. Um, then this third section of prayers and then a praise. Um, Lord, speak up for the quiet ones in the land. I really like what he does in this last section here. David knows good and well that there are good and godly people all over Israel that are with him because he's God's king, he's God's man, and who want Israel to prosper. They're praying for the peace of Jerusalem. They're praying that idolatry will get dealt with, the high places will be torn down. They're glad when David did those things, when he dealt with idolatry in the land. They're glad when he has the time, and his desire to build a temple for God and all those different things. And so I like the phrase of verse 19. He says, Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. What do you think David has in mind when he says they are wrongfully my enemies? Do you like that as much as I do, how he tucks that in there? When you, hear the, when you hear somebody say, Well, this is what they think, but they think that wrongfully. What do you think David's trying to communicate there? Just like with Saul, he was never against Saul. Hmm. And uh, David didn't stick anybody's down Yeah, that's a great example because Saul made himself David's enemy. But David wasn't against Saul. He was for Saul. And he always recognized the position Saul held as being ordained of God, even when Saul was using that position to lash out at David. Great example, Gary. That's, that's, that's right up there at the top of the list of the way to illustrate it. Um, David doesn't believe they have to be enemies. They could be friends. David would have been Saul's loyal subject and waited on God's timing to cash in on the promise that he was going to be king one day instead of Jonathan. That had already happened. But Saul was like, no, nope, I want to handle this by taking you out, because my son Jonathan is going to be king, not you, David. They have made David their enemy because they're enemies of God. They're wrongfully David's enemies. And I think we need to remember that. There are people, uh, and, and I don't know if any of you have this. It, it, it may be that we're living in days already that just you being a Christian. People line themselves up against you there uh, at your workplace or wherever else just because you're a serious Christian. I don't know. I think we're getting there fast and in days of persecution and harassment that happens. But as a pastor, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a room having a good conversation with somebody. Somebody else comes in and identifies me as a pastor. And the same person I've been talking to and we've got a cordial thing going on, their disposition, their countenance changes And they stare daggers at me because of their disconsent with God. Being a preacher represents their frustration with God, with Jesus, with biblical truth, with a church in the past or whatever and stuff like that. So if you're in the ministry, that just comes along with it. It's happened a number of times, you know. And uh, now, am I any of their enemies? No, man. They don't ever need to accept my Jesus. I'm going to be their friend no matter what. Man, if I get to know somebody, I'm for them. I'm going to be for them, you know. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to try to, uh, you know, love them whether they love God ever or not, you know, in those things. You, gotta, you, you get Danny Campbell as a friend, you're going to have Danny Campbell as a friend hopefully forever, you know. Um, but David asked God to show who's being a real turkey to the world. <laughs> in verse 19, let them not rejoice over here, wrongfully me, my enemies. And uh, he goes along that same theme a little bit. Uh, But notice what he transitions to here, verse 20. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. Let's go back to the ESV. What does it say there in verse 20, Johnny, where mine says quiet ones? For they do speak peace. They do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land. Okay. devise words of deceit. so here David is picturing all of those people out there that love God who don't have the authoritative position of David and he as a vocal king was sharing how much he loved Yahweh how much he wanted to build the temple, etc there were all kinds of quiet people in the land that were for God and with David, but uh, they weren't necessarily going on the record right going they, they weren't necessarily going on the record they were they were quiet and David pictures kind of a spiritual war going on uh there's so many forces out there now we throw satan into the mix satan's deceiving and he's trying to tempt you know and then there there, there's these wicked enemies of god that satan's inspiring and they are trying to get attention for these quiet ones in the land they're trying to get them to not like david they're trying to get them to turn away from their own faithfulness to god and uh I think he's thinking about how loudmouthed these enemies of God are. And all through the land, God has his quiet ones. They love the Lord. They love their king. But they're timid and not speaking up for God and his leader. And all around them are these loud voices trying to turn them from God. I love that David brings them in. Uh, There is a sense in which sometimes a leader going through a hard time represents a lot more people than himself. And I know uh, President Trump is a, a lightning rod you know uh, now, and I think that um, you know, uh, I'm so thankful for the four years he had as president. I, I, I wish uh, he and President Biden would both kind of fade away and it, it'd be a different two running next time and things like that. But um, I look on mortified at how all these things are being dumped on President Trump uh, and trying to get him off the scene, and I think there is a real sense in which he's not the one they really hate. They hate people that you know believe um, biblical truth. Now, President Trump may or may not be a Christian. I, you know, I've heard multiple stories of individuals leading to Christ. I'm up to four or five different ones that led him to Christ, you know, and stuff. And politicians will pray with a lot of people to receive Christ and that sort of thing. He certainly has a lot of despicable things in his past and I do not like some of the ways that he does things uh, as he goes forward, but um, there is a sense in which, you know, uh, the ones they're really after are the quiet ones in the land who want there to be biblical morality, who want there to be sanity when it comes to male-female, that's what the genders are, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, down the line. And so David, as the king, realizes all these folks are out there. And in verse 22, God asked God to use God's voice to have the last word, amen? God will always have the last word. David asked God to speak sooner rather than later. Verse 26, let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion with who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. And confident that God will... Uh, will answer he offers a final praise course so praise course number three Johnny you helped us out with the last one let let me read verse 27 and see if y'all can figure out uh, how this uh, interacts with the other two little praise interludes let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause and let them say continually let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant so, what are we going to now? There was the Lord, my soul's going to praise you. Lord, as you answer these prayers and, and deal with those that are your enemies, uh, I'm going to praise you publicly. What's he picturing here? What's he picturing here is going to be the result of uh, this, uh, this, this going on. Well, here it is. Ready? The quiet ones will praise you a little louder. <laughs> That's his hope, right? Now we get to where this isn't just a prayer David's praying, but you can see him praying it as a prayer, right? God, I know I'm not the only one in Israel. I know because I'm king, because I'm out here, you know, people are taking their slings at me, and as king, it comes with the territory. But Lord, the quiet ones, the quiet ones out there, they're going to get their turn. And may they speak up, may they get louder when given the opportunity. Not so much to defend me, but David says, I am your king, God. You're the one that called me into this. And so some of the bullets I take are because I'm your man out here in the front. And as obviously as a pastor, I can relate to that, right? I get to be a public spokesman for you guys and I'm expected to speak up, right? But boy, it means a lot when we're all speaking up. It means a lot when we're all speaking up. And so... You also see where this David anticipated this being a song that people would sing, right? So what's the nation singing? The nation singing, Lord, we can turn to you, deal decisively with our enemies. And as individuals, may we uh, praise you. And may we do that publicly. And then, Lord, those that haven't previously gone on record, help them to go on record too, right? I think he's building up toward that, and he pictures this being sung. All the good and godly people of the land who unfortunately are too often quiet while godly leaders take all the verbal jabs from the enemies of God. He pictures them finally saying enough is enough and not just speaking out, but shouting out whose side they're on. King David's side, because David's on God's side. Whew, do you see that there? Am I on to something? Maybe. Let them continually say, let the Lord be magnified. I think it's worth saying, and I'm not talking about me here, but I interact with a lot of pastors. One of my prayers was, as my ministry went on, that I would get to be a pastor of pastors you know, without being a know-it-all, just an encouragement to fellow pastors. And by God's grace, being pastor of the tabernacle means I've gotten to pastor now two different churches that are in the top 10% of size of churches across the country, you know. I helped grow Wayne Hills to that size, and I'm trying to help Tabernacle stay and grow again, you know. Um, And so 90% plus of pastors never get to pastor a church this big. That doesn't make me a general like Jerry Falwell was. You know, I'm not a general. Um, Maybe a captain, I don't know, you know. But it does mean... Sometimes other pastors, younger and even older ones that are at a smaller church or whatever, look to me for encouragement, and I try to encourage them, and it's a great blessing of mine to be able to do. So I'm not saying this so much for me, although I've had my times of experiencing hardships also. I think it's worth saying that often a pastor leaves discouraged, and often it's only a few vocal critics who made it hard for him to minister with joy. And the church just didn't know about it. And the majority of the church, they loved that pastor and they loved his family. But that guy's had to deal with a few people making life a living hell for him and his family. Calling his kids fat or this, calling out this or that or other things. Just being uncharitable toward his wife and questioning. You know, I've seen it all and you have too. Many times on the way out, the pastor and his wife hear from the quiet ones for the first time. Calvin Miller, in his book about leaving the first church to go teach for a while before he pastored again, tells a story about how under a beleaguered discouragement, he wound up resigning the church and going on to the next assignment. And he says, at the going away meal, the church gave him gifts and in their notes, I think a gift of like $10,000 uh, and just tremendously encouraging notes. He and his wife got to the hotel and they started reading the notes that people were giving them. And he's like, if we had known how many people felt this way, we might have been able to tough it out. you know." But rarely did the quiet ones speak up to the carnal Christian church bullies who considered the church theirs and had run that pastor away and had run other pastors away also. So I'm not saying this again. I'm not saying this for Danny Campbell's sake. I'm good. I am, though, thinking about all the people you know out in the community. And this is a time of discouragement for many Christian leaders. And there's a few vocal opponents saying, well, how come we're not growing? Not many churches are growing this side of COVID. And some churches have been on a downward trajectory for 15 years. They've got a new pastor in. And what? if, if your church has been in decline for 10 years, you ought to trace that out, what it was looking like. And keep it going for another 10 years. And if the new pastor, as he comes in, gets you above that line, (laughs) even if it looks like a flat line to those looking on, then things are heading the right direction. Maybe one day they'll go up again. Maybe it's just time to be faithful in the midst of a lot of hardship in the land and stuff. But you influence people who have pastors. You tell them to encourage those pastors. And if there's some church bullies out there really making it difficult Sometimes it means a lot. Bullies in life, right? Physical and spiritual bullies. Oftentimes just a little bit of don't say that back to them just so the quiet one stands up is enough to say, Oh, I thought I, I thought we all didn't like you. No, don't you talk about my pastor like that. Don't you talk about my leader like that. You know. Because sometimes we do like that Hindu karma, don't <laughs> <laughs> So too often, your final fill in the blank there is carnal church bullies never get stood up to by the good and godly people of the church that like spiritual things happening in the church. And there's a spiritual war going on. And we're not to get into fisticuffs or ugly meetings or things like that and stuff like that. But David pictures in this final praise, man, even the quiet ones are going to get up and speak. But look what he says in verse 28. I'll give you a second here, Mike. But even if they don't, look what David says in verse 28. Do you catch this? And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all day long. Where's David at? He's right back there. Lord, even if nobody else takes their stand praising you, I'm going to do it anyway. That's just who I am and that's what it's going to be about. So I love how many of the Psalms this happens in. I hope this has been encouragement tonight, you know, and, and, and you're not worried about me or anything. Uh, Mike? Uh,
0: yes. Um, Shirley and I moved here in 2004. This actually relates to what you just said. Yeah. In 2004. So I think around 2007, um, in Pelham, one of my neighbors, a pastor, mm. advised me to go to a luncheon. And, uh, and uh, there's a, there was another man. There were three of us that went. And the luncheon was for pastors. Well, when I got there, the speaker was a, a woman, a Christian woman, psychologist, mm. who was trying to encourage the pastors. I've
1: never seen such a group of beat-up mm. men. Wow.
0: The way they dressed, yeah. their face, they're yeah. their parishioners They beat them up. Yeah. I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a good word. Well, I just want to make clear, listen, um, pastors have a lot of wonderful things that they get to experience uh, because of the call of God on their life. They get to study and preach the word. They get to deliver the burden, the message that God's given them. They get to be with, there with people when they make their peace with God, when they get married, when they have babies, when they um, you know, have problems and sicknesses and stuff, and then uh, the funeral time, You know, to really the whole orb of ministry and things like that. It is a wonderful and super high calling and things. And every, as I mentioned this morning, everything, anybody that is a leader in any way, you guys as coaches know it and stuff like that, there are some unique challenges in this age to leading when people push back so much and are wise in their own eyes and things like that, you know. Um, And I'm not saying that, you know, pastors, you know, sometimes don't do a lot to mess up, you know, things around them, and, and we've all seen that as well. Uh, but um, probably not in higher proportion to the number of normal mess-ups that happen in life and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, you obviously, when you hear about a situation going on in our church or another church or a component of the church or a Christian college or ministry, do what David did. He took it to the Lord in prayer. He took it to the Lord in prayer. And one of the things he prayed for there at the end, as we saw, was this thing about the quiet ones, you know, That uh, because everybody, especially in these days as um, they get darker and darker, nobody's going to be immune from the time that they'll have to take their stand. In America, we've seen that time come for those designing websites, for those baking cakes, uh, for people working for the post office and having to work Sunday and they say that's not the deal I signed up for and having to go to court to defend that right, you know, um, and things like that. So it's just part of it. Let's pray.